Hey guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. When you guys think of comfort, what are the first few things that come to mind? A luxurious bed? Maybe some clothes that fit just right? What about air conditioning on a hot day or spending the night beside the love of your life? All of these things are comforts, but one of them is not like the others. It's pretty obvious which one it is, right? It's the one that you can't buy at the store. The word comfort has two main senses, a material sense and an immaterial sense. We can define the material sense as a physical state of ease or well-being, and the immaterial sense as a psychological state of ease or well-being. These definitions are, of course, approximate, but I think they effectively distinguish the two senses of the word. As fluent speakers of English, this distinction is not something that we ever have to consciously think about. The English language itself just programs us to accept the fact that, yes, we use the same word to describe air conditioning on a hot day as we do to describe sleeping next to the love of our life. But the reality is that these two senses of comfort represent very different things. When you think about it, it's actually kind of strange that we use the same word to describe the merits of both an air conditioner and the love of our life. But before we make any assumptions about the moral implications of this, let's take a look at the written record and see what we find. The immaterial sense of comfort, as in to comfort someone in grief, appeared during roughly the 13th century, while the material sense, as in to be in the comfort of your own home, appeared about 400 years later. None of the word comfort's early usages foreshadow its eventual semantic broadening, but by halfway through the 17th century, a new material sense of the word, which is to say our modern material sense of the word, was firmly in place. Based on the sudden ubiquity of the word, it almost seems as if the quality of life became more comfortable overnight. Actually, that's exactly what happened. But, of course, there's much more to the story. In today's episode, we're going to see how the socioeconomic innovations of capitalism, and more specifically, consumerism, not only invented the modern material sense of the word comfort, but also the concept of material comfort overall. Now, that might sound ridiculous to you. If something is comfortable, it's comfortable. Comfort wasn't invented by capitalism. But if that's the case, let me ask you a question. What's the most comfortable thing in your home? Did you have to purchase it? My guess is yes. Here's another question. How many comfortable items do you own in your home that were not purchased? I don't think I can name a single one, and I suspect that I may not be alone in this. If this isn't enough to convince you of the very direct link between consumerism and material comfort, try searching for examples of comfort used as a noun in a sentence in the Oxford Learner's Dictionary. The examples that come up are 1. These tennis shoes are designed for comfort and performance. 2. You can now watch the latest movies in the comfort of your own home. 3. The hotel offers a high standard of comfort and service. And 4. They had enough money to live in comfort in their old age. Whether it's conscious or not, every one of these examples links comfort to some aspect of consumerism, 
Notice that the Oxford Learner's Dictionary doesn't even include a single example of the immaterial sense of comfort. The link between consumerism and the materiality of comfort is so strong that the only reason we're not consciously aware of it is because it's just so obvious. It's a link that has been staring us in the face all along, and that's why we take it for granted. Let's start things off by looking at the etymological origins of comfort. Comfort is most immediately derived from the old French verb comforter, which means to give strength. The old French word is derived from the Latin word confortare, which meant the same thing. The Latin word is actually a compound word comprising two smaller words, con and fortis, meaning with and strength, respectively. So, the literal definition of comforter was to give strength. Side note. If you're wondering why today we say comfort with an M instead of comfort with an N, the written record indicates that sometime during the 14th century, the N sound morphed into an M sound, thus producing the modern pronunciation and spelling of the word we have today. The change of the Latin prefix from con to com is actually quite common, though this change usually occurs when the prefix is tacked onto words that begin with the letters B, as in combat, M as in comment, or P as in compound. Ironically, the com as it appears in the word common is not a result of this change. The prefix con usually doesn't change when it precedes the letter F as demonstrated by words such as conflate, configure, and confuse, so the mutated com in comfort is an anomaly. When comfort first appeared in the English language during the 12th century, it retained its original Latin sense of giving strength and, in turn, replaced the native Old English word frofer. As it appears in the Ancranawissa, a monastic rule book written during the 13th century, the word frofer is used to describe the comforts that monks could use against sinful temptations. Now, remember, this initial sense of comfort meant to give strength. So, the comforts described in the Ancranawissa were not the kind of comforts that would make monks feel at ease in the face of temptation, but rather the kind of comforts that would give them the strength to resist temptation altogether. In other words, comfort originally was a form of religious discipline. Just a century later, the consolatory sense of the word began to appear in writing. In this usage, we can clearly recognize the precursor to our modern form of the immaterial sense of the word. Actually, it is our modern immaterial sense of the word. This sense of comfort has not changed much over the course of 700 years, with the exception of two caveats. The first is that, up until approximately the 17th century, the word still carried a lingering religious undertone, which is to say that the source of comfort was often God himself. Often, but not always. The second is that, during this time period, the distinction between the meanings to give strength and to give consolation is often ambiguous. The following excerpt from Shakespeare's Henry VI Part I nicely demonstrates both caveats in a single passage. In Act Three, Scene Four, Richard Plantagenet says, quote, Renowned Talbot doth expect my aid, and I am louted by a traitor villain, and cannot help the noble chevalier. God comfort him in this necessity. End quote. 
clearly God is the source of comfort in this passage, but does comfort mean to give strength or to give consolation? Given the chaotic moment in the play during which these lines appear, I would err on the side of to give strength, but honestly, you can make a case for either definition. What I like about this passage is that the distinction doesn't really matter. It demonstrates the closeness between the two definitions. Over time, the more specialized definition to give consolation simply became more predominant, and we still have that with us today. Up until this point, comfort has been an exclusively immaterial noun. There are a few recorded instances between the 13th and 17th centuries that suggest a meaning such as nourishment or sustenance, and this indeed has a material component, but the comfort of having food to eat so you don't die of starvation is not the same comfort as having an air conditioner in the summertime. The mid-17th century marks a pivotal moment in British history, and for that matter, world history at large. Though the word capitalism would not officially appear in English until 1853, its economic ideologies were well underway in the form of what we might call mercantilism, or retrospectively, merchant capitalism. The emergence of this new economy ushered in what is known as the Consumer Revolution, a time period during which the general population of England began buying luxury goods. Lots of them. New industries and investment opportunities had created a social ranking that previously hadn't existed. The middle class. Instead of the arbitrary circumstances of a noble birth, wealth suddenly became the new determining factor of social status. For the first time ever, people outside of the nobility had money to buy things that weren't absolutely necessary, and as a matter of chain reaction, consumerism, and by extension, material comfort, was born. So, how did the word comfort become associated with these new luxuries? The answer, surprisingly, is as a reaction against the word luxury. Many philosophers and social commentators who were witnessing these cultural changes take place expressed their disdain toward luxury. According to them, the consumption of luxuries rendered men weak and effeminate. Luxuries were a symbol of the aristocracy, whose popular appeal was, at this point in history, waning, and waning fast. However, everyone seemed to agree that exotic imports such as coffee, sugar, and cotton were all pretty damn great, but a new word was needed to distinguish these things from aristocratic luxuries. They couldn't call them necessities because, well, that just wasn't true. Furthermore, the word necessity was associated with poverty, the very socioeconomic condition that this newly emerging middle class had overcome. So the word comfort was applied to goods that existed somewhere on the spectrum between necessity and luxury. Comforts improved the standard of living, but did not contribute to moral degradation, or at least that was the idea. In reality, comforts were just luxuries by a different name. This begs the question, what was the word for material comforts before the consumer revolution? The answer is, there wasn't one. Sure, there was the word luxury, but this doesn't quite fill the definition we're looking for. The word luxury dates back to the 14th century, but... 
Back then, it wasn't a synonym for material comfort, but rather a word meaning sinful self-indulgence or sensual pleasure. Interestingly, the earliest recorded meaning of luxury in English is actually sexual intercourse. Even today, luxury isn't really a true synonym of comfort. Luxury is like comfort on steroids. If something is comfortable, it improves the quality of life, but if something is luxurious, it suggests unnecessary decadence. Comforts can also be decadent and unnecessary, but luxuries are really decadent and unnecessary. According to cultural historian John Crowley, the question, what was the word for material comfort before the consumer revolution, is fraught with an anachronism, because the concept of material comfort had not yet been invented. Like I said earlier, this argument probably sounds ridiculous because comfort isn't a concept, right? Either something is comfortable or it isn't. But Crowley suggests that there is nothing natural about material comfort. We can summarize the main point of his book, The Invention of Comfort, with a passage from the book itself. Quote, Physical comfort was an innovation that had to be taught and learned. End quote. Let me try to take a linguistic approach to explain his seemingly radical point of view. The absence of a word for material comfort prior to the consumer revolution suggests two things. First, that material comfort was inaccessible to most of the population, and second, that it just wasn't a priority in life. Let's use the example of a chair. Before the 17th century, when a chairmaker made a chair, he probably would not have gone out of his way to make it comfortable. That's not to say that he would have gone out of his way to make it uncomfortable, or that comfortable chairs didn't exist at all. Rather, Household goods were made to serve practical functions, not to improve the quality of life, and the cultural view and expectations of household goods reflected this emphasis on practicality. Crowley cites a 14th century ecclesiastical text that evaluates a, quote, well-suited home as competent, end quote. So competence was the original material comfort. What I mean is that up until the consumer revolution, a home would have been considered well-suited as long as its household goods served their function competently. But today, a home is considered well-suited only if its household goods are comfortable. Now, there may be some gray area in this statement, but for the sake of generalization, I think we can boil the matter down to a single question. Where would you rather have dinner? at your friend's house that has stiff, upright wooden chairs with no cushioning, or your other friend's house that has curvy chairs with high-tech Tempur-Pedic cushions that perfectly conform to the size and shape of your butt. Yeah, exactly. Today, the Western world is living in the wake of commodified comfort. What kind of moral stance should we take on this? On one hand, Tempur-Pedic cushions that conform to the size and shape of our butts are totally awesome, but on the other, we are saturated by privileges that are completely unnatural and often pandering. There are certainly good arguments both for and against the inundation of comforts available to us today, but before you make up your mind firmly on the matter, I'd like to share some of the unobvious ideas put forth by historian Joan DeGene. 
She argues that the availability of material comforts helped catalyze new cultural values such as privacy and sensuality. She makes a convincing argument. The late 17th century and early 18th centuries saw the rise of purpose-designated rooms such as bedrooms and bathrooms, thus increasing privacy and, quite literally, creating personal space. The isolation of the bedroom as a place for intimacy and lovemaking was, believe it or not, at one point new and radical. Crowley pushes this argument even further by linking these innovations to the social reforms of 19th century abolitionism in America. He writes, quote, By the last decade of the 18th century, the ideal of physical comfort had sufficient ideological force for humanitarians to incorporate it in their appeals for social justice toward the poor, the incarcerated, and the enslaved. End quote. In other words, the cultural view of comfort had come full circle. Instead of being stigmatized as the downfall of civilization, comfort became linked to basic human rights. Well, that's it for this one, guys. Thanks for listening. Do you have a strong moral stance on modern material comforts? Even if material comforts were responsible in some way for social progress, do you think that the 21st century has taken comfort too far? I want to know what you think, so please write to me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com and I'll discuss some of your answers on the next show. If you never want to miss an episode, be sure to sign up for the Words for Granted mailing list. You can find it on the show's Facebook page or at wordsforgranted.com. If you'd like to support the show directly, please check out the Words for Granted Patreon account. You can find that on the website, too. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a great crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. If you donate as little as $1 a month, that's right, just $1 a month, I'll be posting exclusive bonus material available only to you contributors. I also urge you to leave a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever directory you use to listen to the show. Last but not least, I would like to thank Zach Tenorio Miller from Arc Iris for providing words for granted with music. You can find out more about Arc Iris at arcirismusic.com, and if you share the show on social media, I will send you a free download of the theme song. All right, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted.